hi everyone. Welcome to episode 135. Super, super excited. Yeah. Yes, yes. Today we are joined by someone that we absolutely, well, we love all of the, the guests and everybody we talk to, but somebody that is so special for many, many reasons. When we first started the podcast, Dr. Boster, Dr. Aaron Boster agreed to join us. And we thought, wow, this uh, MS specialist slash, you know, neurologist is such a big deal. And he wants to join us. Okay, this is great. Um, And he's always been enthusiastic and very eager to come and join us. He's always, he never says no. He's like, all right, let's do it. Yes. Yes. (laughs) And we appreciate that because he does have a really, really busy schedule. So yeah, today we are speaking with Dr. Boster. Welcome to season four of the Myelin and Melanin podcast. I'm Dawn. And I'm Dana. We are two Black women sharing our musings on life, MS, and everything in between. You can find us on the web at myelinandmelanin.com, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at myelinmelanin. Also, don't forget to subscribe to us on YouTube. Hi, Dr. Boster. Thank you so much for joining us again. Howdy, it is so nice to be back. Virtual hugs to both of you. Yes. Yes, same to you. you. Super happy. Yes, yes. It's always a joy to speak with you. You're always a fan favorite. So thank Uh, you. That's really awesome. (laughs) (laughs) So one, and I think it was the last time that we talked to you on the show, we were, and it was last year around this time, we were finishing up an intimacy series. And um, a year later, we're still talking about intimacy, but we're talking about intimacy in a different context. So as we all know, intimacy is not the equivalent of sex, doesn't, you know, that's a part of intimacy, but intimacy is really closeness and connection. And so we wanted to talk with you about a few things. Um, And I guess I'll just start with the first. So obviously... It is important for physicians, specifically MS specialists and neurologists to treat, um, to have an intimate relationship with their patient because the reality is that we share everything with you guys. I mean, our MS specialists, yes, sometimes know more about us in our personal lives than our friends and family do. That's spot on, spot on. I I often, I oftentimes tell my, my fellows and my trainees uh, in the modern era, um, patients impacted by MS will tell you things they won't tell their spouse or their priest. It is yes. one of the most intimate um, and um, what, it's, it's, some, it's a relationship that has to have, um, you have to respect it, I guess is what I want to try to say. It's yes. a very, very special relationship. I guess a lot of words to say that, yes, I agree with you. <laughs> yes, yes, that, yes, that, that's just it. I guess, well, that leads me to my first question. So how do you treat your patients as whole people? And not just like a set of symptoms. Oh, this is patient one, two, three, who has spasticity and blah, 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 blah. So how do you approach treating your patients as whole people? 
you uh, you honor me with that question, and I'm really kind of excited and maybe even a little bit tearful as I answer you. <laughs> so I learned that I wanted to do MS care when I was a kid. I've told you that story before. You know, I was 12 watching my mom and grandma be mistreated by medical professionals. They weren't the one with MS. They were the family of my uncle with MS. Mm -hmm. and, and so I saw firsthand what it means when a doctor doesn't call your mom back. Mm -hmm. You know, I saw firsthand what it's like for someone to be scared mm -hmm. and alone and not sure what to do and to depend upon a medical professional who then lets them down, right? And that's horrible. Mm -hmm. And I, I knew that was horrible when I was a munchkin. Um, and I think it influenced the way I think about things. So, you know, I, I grew up high school, college, med school saying, I'm going to be an MS doctor. So this was front of my mind before I knew what the pathophysiology of multiple sclerosis is or any of the other big fancy words that I later learned. I knew what it meant to... Um, not have a strong relationship with the care provider. <laughs> you know, that, that was one of my earliest like uh, medical memories as it relates to my uncle and, and multiple sclerosis. So mm -hmm. I bring that up because I'm a weirdo and I probably approach this slightly differently than the next guy. You know, when I talk to a lot of colleagues, many, many folks who become MS clinicians either have a personal connection to MS like Dr. Chris Legank or like myself, or they really, really loved the complex neuroimmunology. Because from an academic standpoint, it's super, super complex and fascinating. And I don't think one person is better adept or less adept. I don't mean to suggest that at all. I'm just pointing out that, that we approach things from different perspectives. So it's with that background, when I meet someone, I guess the first thing I'll say is, is I don't view a human as having MS. I think a family has MS. And so that might be another uh, slight difference in perspective and the way that I treat families. Mm -hmm. I openly tell spouses they are allowed to cheat, like to, to tattle on their husbands and their wives. <laughs> I give them my cell phone the same way I give my patient my cell phone because it's a family affair. And if you don't think that your spouse sees things that you don't see, then you're misunderstanding the entirety of this disease process. So, you know, the family is, is critical in the decision-making. And I do not like for families I don't like patients to make big decisions in the absence of their village. Villages come in different shapes. They may be a spouse or a best friend or, or, or a child or a parent. You, you know what I mean? You, you want to have your people with you. Mm -hmm. and, and so when we make decisions, I, I try to do that um, as a group, as an intimate group. The, uh, another piece to this is that when I meet someone, I spend like too much time. And I say too much time jokingly, but you know, really, I, I take such a long time to see patients in consultation. I'm not reimbursed for part of it, believe it or not, like because insurance won't reimburse the full amount oftentimes. And yet I do that because to not do that is for me not to understand the entirety of the picture. We spend a lot of time talking and um, I, I, I read what other docs have written. I, I, I actually have patients in preparation to see me write a narrative, which I read. I still spend a lot of time going through it and talking with them about it making sure that I understand the story and making sure that I understand the current symptoms that suck. You know, we spent a lot of time during that initial, during that initial visit and it always culminates in some really critical homework. So the, the, the homework assignment includes writing down life goals because 
you know, you're going to have MS your whole life. You'll die with, not from MS. But done poorly, it risks disabling you. And it sure as heck risks taking things away from you. And over the next 20, 30, 40 years that we're working together, talking about an intimate relationship, Mm -hmm. I'm going to ask you to do all kinds of stuff that you don't want to do. Stuff from getting a skin exam to having a pelvic exam, not by me, to having, you know, to having laboratories, to having spinal fluid drawn, to sticking your freaking head in a scanner every year. Plus, I mean, there's a lot of things that I may ask you to do that you don't really want to do. And you're not going to agree to them because I tricked you. You're going to agree to them because you and I clarified years ago, I'm on your team. I'm trying to help you achieve your life goals. You said you wanted to climb Machu Picchu. So let's giddy up, right? Yeah. So it's that perspective that then guides our entire decision-making, right? I I tell people, and I'm very upfront, it's it's not my disease, it's your disease. And I don't make people do things. Great example is smoking, like smoking cigarettes. I can't come up with a better way to speed up your MS. Like quite literally, like I think it's the best way, arguably, to speed up multiple sclerosis. And there are adults with MS who smoke. And I tell them, I, what I just told you, I said, you know, that's, that's a great way to speed up your disease. I said, I'm not making a judgment call. I'm not, I'm not making a value comment. You're an adult. You can do whatever you want. I just feel like I have to make sure you know that. And I reserve the right to ask you about it. And you reserve the right to say, I'm smoking great, doc. Right. But, you know, so, so I'm very upfront and open about that kind of stuff. And, and you know, that extends, that extends beyond just casual talking it extends into decision-making. I'll give you um, a quick example. Someone comes to see me who wants to be on a particular therapy. They've researched it. They, they, they can recite to me the risk benefit. They know all the side effects. Very impressive. And another doctor said, well, we don't think your MS is that bad. You don't need that. We deem it. And that didn't sit very well with that individual. And in talking to them, you can't tell me they didn't understand what they were being asked to understand. They got it. They, they just didn't have the same opinion that that doctor did. I don't think it's my right as a doctor or as a clinician or as a human that I get to tell you uh, your risk aversion. Like, oh, no, no, no. I deem that too dangerous for you, darling. You know, like, that's not mm-hmm. my, I don't get to do that. I didn't take a class in paternalism where I get to say like, well, unfortunately, this is not acceptable for you, <laughs> Right. Right. And I think what my job is probably more along the lines of teaching you the risk benefit, the, the putting that risk benefit in the context of the disease, and then in teaching you in a way that you can understand. Because if I use a bunch of highfalutin dumb words, it doesn't matter that I understand it. Like, so I have to teach you in a way you understand. And then I have to do this thing where I shut up and then you tell me what you want to do. And as long as I don't think I'm putting you in medical risk, you know, like we're agreeing to something that could really hurt you, you know, substantially, as long as I'm, I can sleep at night with our decisions, I want to support you in what you want to do. And, and in this instance, this example I was giving you earlier, we ultimately opted to go on to that medicine. And I was honest. I said, I can't look you in the eyes and tell you for a limited time only for 999, if you sign up now, then you're going to grow wings and fly around the room. I don't know that it's going to work but I sure as heck don't want to leave anything on the table. And if you accept the risk benefit of what I'm suggesting, I'll play. Yeah. So I, I, I think it'd be, to, to me, I don't know how else to do it. I mean, the reason I sleep at night taking care of people that have a disease that at times gets the best of us is, is 
I am, I try my hardest to empower them and to educate them and to support them. And I don't leave anything on the table. That doesn't mean we use the most effective drug at all times. It means that we're talking about all the options all the time. And I'm not holding things back. I'm not, I'm not denying them op opportunities. You know, so I, I think that's super duper important. Um, and, and I just don't think any other way really makes a, a lot of sense. <laughs> right. Absolutely. You know, I, oh, go ahead, doctor. I, I, I guess, I, sorry, I, I risk babbling. I apologize to you guys. You know, I, I also think that there's another thing that I learned a long time ago. Um, I think a lot of doctors are either taught or they just kind of decide that they're going to be stoic and, and not share emotions and re kind of remain at arm's length. And that's not my style. So, so I celebrate with patients. When, when, when you mow your lawn, and, and that was a goal that we had, I want a picture of it. Like literally, like I want you to send me a te like text me a picture of it. And if you stand at your high school son's graduation, we are going to applaud. <laughs> We're going to clap our hands. We're going to celebrate. Because we also have to grieve loss together. I do this with you. I don't get to do it you know, in isolation, at a distance. I, I don't know how to do that, I guess. But we do it together. And I cry with my patients. I mean, maybe it's because, you know, I have a poorly controlled depression. I'm just joking. You know, I cry with my patients. And, and we, you know, and then when we're done crying, we say, okay, well, you know, you're not dead yet. So we should probably come up with another plan. And, and I, you know, I, I can't tell you that this is the way that doctors should or should not behave but it's the only way that makes sense to me. And, you know, and, and so that's, that's what we do, or that's what I do. I saw a meme at, that was talking about intimacy and actually one of the, uh, one of the memes said it's crying together. And so yeah. it absolutely is. I mean, because MS has such an impact on every relationship that you have. And if you don't have some sort of trust and understanding, and if, if you're MS specialist, if you aren't speaking the same language as we have said in our previous series, yep, yep. we have a love language. We all have love languages. Yeah. If you don't understand that, then how can you treat the person and not just the symptoms? You know what I'm saying? Yep. Like, I, I do. Open and that door. Mm -hmm. Yep. So, so uh, you're, yeah, exactly. So, so, so often I'll meet somebody who has been cared for very well by another doctor, you know, and, and I say very well because I'm reading the notes. I see what that doctor has done. They've done the right things, except the patient doesn't understand. They don't understand the disease process. They don't understand why the decisions were made. They're, they're you know, and, and really it all boils down to communication, as you just point out, and, and, and connecting. I don't think that doctor did a bad job, but maybe if there was a, a, a miss, it was in the communication and the relationship because that patient didn't realize it. Does, does that make sense? Like, yeah, it's an important thing. Um, you know, and, and it, I, I, I say this tongue in cheek sometimes, except I'm, I'm not actually joking. I don't help. I'm not a surgeon. I don't help people by, by cutting them open or, or <clears throat> removing an organ or, or, you know, doing something physical, like, like mechanical. I, I help people by request. Like I quite literally like ask, like, would you please do this? And so my thinking is if, if you don't trust me, you know, if, if you don't understand the request, you're not going to do it. You know, so however, if you flip it around and you trust me 
and you understand, you are very likely to do it because we clarified our goals early on. Yeah. We clarified our life goals. We clarified our MS goals. And this falls into that. So when I say, hey, look, not smoking, just because I used that example earlier, mm-hmm. will slow down your disease and it'll make you get worse uh, less quickly and it'll help you maintain brain volume and I'll get blah, 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 blah. Then you at least understand why I'm asking you about it. <laughs> and right. if you transition from the pre-contemplative phase of quitting smoking, which is a doctor's way of saying, speak to the hand, I ain't quitting and you transition from there to the contemplative phase, which is, well, I'm going to listen to you while I smoke the cigarette, right? If, if, right? if you transition there and you know that I'm on your team, like you trust that I'm not going to be a Yahoo or be rude or condescending or whatever, and you know that I have your best interest at heart, you may share that with me. You may say, hey, Aaron, I actually am kind of thinking about not smoking so much. And, you know, and so that creates an opportunity where I get to help you, where we get to do better collectively, and it was based on this intimate trust that we're discussing. Yeah. I, I'm just kind of speechless because <laughs> it's, it's so critical to have that kind of relationship. You know, um, if you don't trust your specialist, if you don't trust your team, you really are kind of on a dead end street and nobody will be there to, to, to help well, with you. No direction. You know, yes. and, and and before I give the uh, impression that my colleagues like around the world don't care, I want to, I want to share that the system that uh, most doctors work in, and I'm speaking about the United States because I don't know other systems as well, but uh, the system that we work in doesn't provide us that like, that's not the way the system is constructed. And, mm-hmm. and so systemically, it's actually hard to do that. I'll just give you a couple quick examples. So we, doctors in the United States are paid through uh, clinic visits by what's called like a, like a work unit. Like there's a certain amount of money that, that the insurance company will reimburse you for a certain amount of time sitting with the person delivering care, right? And it's, pre, it's set ahead of time. And there's a diminishing returns on time spent. So the amount of money that you're reimbursed for a longer visit is a lot less collectively than if you did a bunch of short visits. Mm-hmm. And so if you have to pay your bills and take care of your family and provide, you're being pushed to doing a bunch of little short visits. And if you do a long visit, which you're allowed to do, you just won't be paid. And, and so that's just a quick example of, of a system that pushes against our ability to offer that intimate relationship. I'll give you one more example. Um, a lot of, you know, a lot of patients I take care of have government uh, insurance. So they have insurance to like say Medicare. And if you have a patient on Medicare, there's a bunch of boxes that have to be checked and, and um, things that have to be done. And, and, and I'm talking about like paperwork type stuff, like either in the electronic medical record, um, you know, or, or on paper. And it's extremely cumbersome, actually. And it has nothing to do with MS or it has nothing to do with like anything else. It's, but those are the requirements of that government payer. And all of these things that I'm talking about take away time. Uh, one last example, then I'll shut up about this, is that when a lawyer calls a client, they bill for the time on the phone. Right. So when a doctor calls a patient, there's no billing system for that. And, and the only reason I'm bringing all this stuff up is you can have a doctor who really cares a whole lot, who wants to have a more intimate relationship, who wants to 
have a closer bond. They just can't um, literally, they're not afforded the time or the resources to be able to do that, which is really unfortunate. You know, I, I just don't want to give the impression like Aaron cares and no one else does. I don't think that's right. true. I just, <laughs> I just don't know how else to behave. So I do it sometimes at a detriment, you know, to my pocketbook or what have you, you know, right. um, but it really is an unfortunate situation. It is. And that brings me to a question that, you know, we had my doctor, Dr. Creighton on, and we spoke with Dr. Mitzi Williams also and asked this question. Um, well, a question similar to this one, uh -huh, uh -huh. knowing that you only have a certain amount of time, there's an allotted period of time yep. where you're going to get paid for the visit. What type of advice or, or not even in advice, but insight would you give someone yeah. that is in a newly awesome question. MS yes. specialist, you know what I mean? Like to cultivate that relation, that intimate relationship. First of all, let me just call out that, that the two women you just mentioned are amazing. Like they're world, they're, they're world-class MS clinicians, top notch. <laughs> I, I love both of them. So I, I just want to start off by saying that those are two amazing doctors, like really. Um, so, so, but to answer your question, I think we have to be creative and smart um, and I'll share with you what I do. And I'm not saying mm -hmm. I, my answer is the right answer, but I'll at least share with you like how I try to overcome that. So, so we want to be, we, we want to have a system set around the way that we see patients. We want like, this is for our own lives. Like we want to structure and, and I'll give you some examples of that. When someone comes to see me, whether that be virtual or whether that be an office, we have them fill out a couple questionnaires. And the fancy medical term is patient reported outcome measure, which is just a questionnaire, like where I ask you some questions and you tick a box, yes or no, or whatever, right? And it takes probably 10 minutes. But what I'm asking you to fill out is a depression screening tool, a fatigue rating scale, and a yes, no to if any of the following things have bothered you since I saw you last. And it's a litany of MS symptoms worsening headache, facial pain, double vision, loss of vision, difficulty swallowing, difficulty speaking, et cetera, right? So you fill that out really quickly before I see you. I look at it before I see you. So if you tell me that you're having no problems with your bladder, I don't ask you about that. Mm -hmm. If you tell me that you're having anxiety attacks, I'm going to start there. So this is just a quick example where that information that you provide before the visit makes me do a better job of honing in on stuff so that we're efficient with what's important. Mm -hmm. So, and, and that's something that does not, that doesn't require fancy, like special tools that requires, like, you could imagine someone comes in the waiting room, you hand them those papers, or we do it electronically, like with an iPad and you click the buttons. And then I look at the results. And sometimes I'll start the visit by saying, according to these numbers, you're really, really depressed right now. Is that true? You know, and that's how I start a visit in some cases. So there are things like that that you can do. I'll give you another example, which is um, contentious. Dun, dun, dun. So, <laughs> so I was trained as a classic neurologist by um, a great man who taught me to do a full neurological examination with every patient, every visit, which is like a pretty long exam. It's like, you know, a lot of stuff. And I did that forever. I did that all through my training. I did that when I started in clinical practice for the first, probably, I don't know, near eight years. Every time I saw someone, I would do this full exam. And what I realized was it took near like 10 minutes sometimes. 
and it didn't really change management very much. Well, what I realized was though, in clinical trials, we would do a full exam, and then we would also do this nine hole peg test and this timed 25 foot walk test and this visual acuity and this matching test called a single digit modality. That stuff, which takes a lot less time to collect and actually is collected by other people, by my medical assistant or by my clinical trial coordinator, that stuff seemed to correlate better than my whole exam. So I started to do something which to this day still makes me feel like uneasy. I don't do full exams anymore. I always do a full exam when I meet someone and then I'll do a full exam every year or so. But I collect that other stuff every single visit and it's more reliable. But here's the point that I'm trying to get at. By not doing a full exam just because I was taught to, I gain <clears throat> 10 minutes to educate the patient or to hear about the patient or to talk with the family. So I budget more time for what I sometimes colloquially refer to as chit-chat. What I mean is like talking, learning, educating, discussing, planning, conquering, winning, instead of going through almost like a Catholic priest sermon with the hand gestures and the movements and the turning. Like, I don't mean to, be, I hope that wasn't, I didn't intend for that to be, sound disrespectful. I just mean it's, it's like a ritual as opposed uh -huh. to something else. And, and so you know, and I say that's contentious because I have many colleagues that are like, oh, grab your pearls. You don't do a right. full exam. Like, you know, what kind of, what kind of horrible doctor are you? I don't think it's that I'm being a horrible doctor. I mean, I'm biased, but I think what I'm doing is I'm using more accurate, quicker to collect easier information so that I can free up time to talk to a human being. Right. You know, there's you and my doctor, Dr. Creighton are so similar. And I, I really like your approach and your style. I think what helped me over the year, over the 20, well, 21 years this month of having MS wow. is that we have developed some sort of, you know how you have synchronized swimming. Yep, it, yep. I, I feel like we are in some sort of beautiful, luxurious pool and we're yep. like, you know, it's like some well-orchestrated yep. synchronicity. And the fact that I trust her, number one, is, is plays a huge role. But the reason why I do that is because she started to ask me early on about me and not yep. like only talk about MS. And she would just ask me one or two questions. It wouldn't take up so much time, but she would ask me about me. And I'm just like, wow, this is something nobody's ever done. And I think that's, that's really important. It is important. Um, and, and I'm not remotely surprised to hear that that's the way Heidi operates in clinic because she's fantastic. And, and it makes me, you know, makes me really happy. Um, it's really cool to know that there are other clinicians out there that care so much and and connect with their patients in that way. And I'm not surprised that it's my friend Heidi. You know, I, I think that's awesome. And in and, and your, you know, I can hear it in your voice. The, the fact that, some, that she interacted with you means a lot. I mean, I, I'm pretty, I, I try to share a little bit about me with my patients. Right. You know, not like, you know, like just what's going on with my kids and what's going on with the clinic? You know, like what, you know, what's, what's going on with my dog? I mean, I bring my dog in the room. I mean, I, it is, it's not a complete two-way street, right? They're not asking me like personal intimate medical questions. You know, but, but, I, but I will share that I have clinical depression. You know, I will share that I take antidepressants or see a counselor. I mean, I, and I share that 
to be open and honest. I mean, so when I'm asking someone to do something, I say, hey, I want you to take this antidepressant. I was like, I, I had to deal with this exact issue. I didn't want to take an antidepressant and I was upset about it. And so, and it's just being human. I mean, it, it's, it's, not, um, it's not anything more than that, <laughs> really. Right, yes, yes. Thank you so much, Dr. Ross. Yeah. Oh, for sure. You know, I, yeah. you know I, I, I think it's funny because I take some heat um, for all the stuff I do on social media um, from, from colleagues and stuff. And, and, and they're wrong. Like, they're misplaced. And the reason I say that is if I, if I were to be fortunate enough to see you in clinic, and let's pretend like we were crushing it and I was seeing you every three months, right? Mm -hmm. And let's say that I saw you for an hour every three months. Oh, my God. This is like, the, you know, the most amount of time that you spend with a MS clinician. Okay. That's four hours a year. Mm -hmm. That's four hours in a year. So, so that's a fraction of a day. That means that 361 days and like, you know, 18 hours, I don't want to misdo math in my head as you record me. <laughs> but my point is, is that for the vast, vast, vast majority of the year, you still have MS and you're not seeing me. So, so if we can do this together, us three, if we can help raise awareness or make someone not scared or empower somebody or energize a family or educate somebody on social media, well, that's awesome. Like, wh why would we not want to do that? And, you know, honestly, it makes me super smile inside when, when I meet a family and someone will say my words to me. They'll say, Dr. B, I'm four for four. And I haven't even met them yet. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is, you think about like how cool that is for Aaron, for me, I, I'm, they are so far along my path trying to get them on the road to Wellville and trying to live their best life. And I just met them and that's a yeah. gift to me. So, so I think, I mean, I'm not on social media giving out free medical advice inappropriately, but I am trying to educate, you know, and I'm trying to empower, and I'm trying to energize and I mean, I think part of the reason that I love you guys so much is you're doing the same thing. And this is a great platform to do that because I bet you as people listen to what we're saying right now, some of them will be naked. Some of them will be in their underpants. Some of them will be at work in a suit. Some of them will be wearing a formal dress. Some of them will be wearing jeans. Some of them will be listening late at night. Some will be listening early in the morning. And the common thread is they all listened when it was convenient for them. Not when it was convenient for us three. Yeah. And that's cool. And that's not the way that traditional medical care is delivered, but it is the way it should be delivered. Yeah. You know, the era of like the doctor will see you now, like that's, that should die soon. Like that's dying, but that's not, that's not cool. <laughs> no, no. Meeting people where they are. Yes. Yeah. If, if you want it to work, if you no. don't care about the outcome, you don't need to do that. But I guess I'm a little bit outcomes based. You know, I want things, I want, I want this stuff to work. <laughs> right. So, so, so I care. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Roster. Oh, it's my, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much. Again, I'll give you a, a second virtual hug. Yes. Um, <laughs> and um, I really appreciate the opportunity. I, you know, I'll say it again. I love what you guys do. And I love that you're out here helping folks and it's so meaningful. Um, so thank you again for having me back. I, I appreciate it. We um, appreciate you. Are definitely one of our favorites so thank oh, you. lies and flattery will get you everywhere with me <laughs> <laughs> let me know when you want to talk next all right sounds good thank okay. you Dr. thank B. you god bless bye-bye now
Thanks for tuning in to the Myelin and Melanin podcast. You can find us on the web at myelinandmelanin.com, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at myelinmelanin. Don't forget to leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.